Tonight I'm going to uh, spend some time in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 to 8 to 16. And this is a second part. The two messages I preached this morning were totally different. Same notes, <laughs> totally different. I don't know how they do that. I don't know if it's a sin in the audience. I don't know what it is. But we talked about the fact that God loved mankind whom he created in his image. His love was not free to flow to man after he sinned, after Adam sinned and plunged the entire race into total depravity. And we took a peek at the innocent, sinless son of God, <coughs> son of man, when he was facing our judgment on the cross and the weight of the pressure of the cross upon him. And this cost was, salvation is free to us, but it's not cheap. Salvation has cost him tremendously. What else could God do? What more could God have done than give us his son? There isn't anything else. He gave all. And it shocks me that a lot of us, including myself sometimes, kind of give him a nod to God and kind of go on and we're not really serious sometimes. This is serious stuff. The divine purpose for the Son of Man was a sacrifice for our sins as prophesied from Adam in the garden. Genesis 3.15 to all the Old Testament prophets. And one of the clearest is Isaiah in 53 verses 5 and 6. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourgings we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And we saw the weight of the judgment, the coming judgment on the Son of Man. It, I, I did a study of how he, he began to preach, as I said, in the, middle of his, in the middle of his ministry, began to change a philosophy after Matthew 12, when they said, you're doing the miracles by Satan, the ultimate rejection of Jesus Christ. In 13, he begins to tell us in Matthew, you know what? There's going to be an interim between my first coming and my second coming. They're going to have weed and tares none of which the disciples caught on, but it also says he began to teach about his death, whereas they were expecting a kingdom. And they were expecting to reign in that kingdom. Now he begins to tell them, look, there's going to be an interim, and I'm coming back again to set up my kingdom. And when he went as a man, as a human being, innocent and holy, true God and true man and one person, we see his humanity very clearly in the garden. He withdrew from them, according to Luke 22, about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began saying, Father, if you're willing to remove this cup from me, yet not my will that yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and he swe his sweat became like drops of blood falling upon the ground. When I was a senior in seminary, I was in a class, the Exposition of Revelation, taught by the president of the seminary, Dr. Hoyt. 
Hoyt was an interesting character, a short German guy. When he pointed to you, he pointed like that. You, he'd say. <laughs> and one of the, we were in the middle of the stuff in Revelation 6 to 19, and one kid said, I've had it. I'm tired of all these judgments. And Dr. Hoyt replied, young man, you have no appreciation for God's hatred of sin. And the only way for God to reconcile us to himself was to sacrifice his own son. And we, we asked the questions this morning. People ask me the questions over the years concerning activities. How many drinks can I have? Can I smoke and be a Christian? Can I go to certain kinds of movies? Can I act ten, listen to certain kind of music? Can I dress a certain way? All those kind of questions. And the question should be, how close to God can I possibly walk? That's the question. Rather than seeing how far I can get to the edge, so to speak, let's see how close we can walk to God and how we can serve him. That is the issue. There are three words that really characterize Christians. There is legalism. There is license and there's liberty and it's hard to swing one way or another isn't it but I want to talk to you about the motivation this evening the call to holiness be ye holy for I am holy and the passage is found in 1st Peter chapter 1 verses 13 to 16 therefore prepare your minds for action Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but be like the Holy One who called you. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Wow, that's tough. That's tough stuff. The call to personal holiness, practical holiness, I know that we are saints. We have been set apart. We are in the person of Jesus Christ. We've been justified. But there's a practical or a personal holiness that God wants to see while we're here on earth. The introduction to this passage is found in the first few verses of this chapter. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And when you look at that seventh verse, it talks about the proof of your faith. This is not just some intellectual, nice little doctrine of eternal security. He is talking about how this truth relates to shoe leather. How do you get it down to the bottom rung of the ladder? That's what he's after. The groundwork is really seen to be holy. And in verse 13, we see it positively in preparation. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. 
Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The main verb in there is to fix your hope completely, and that is where all of these modifiers come in. Fix your hope completely is not a matter of the emotions. This is a matter of the will. The aristocratic command has a sense of a military command. Fix it and fix it now. Therefore, he refers to everything that's preceded it. It is also to be an encouragement to complete the action. It can be that way. It is also begun as a work completely here in the New Testament, completely, fully, or perfectly. Perfectly, rather. The hope of Peter speaks about is not some half-hearted, double-minded purpose. It's single purpose. We have, whether we uh, bankers or housewives or teachers or secretaries or preachers or Sunday school teachers, all of our mind is to have a single person purpose. We were saved for a single purpose, to glorify God. As some missionary said years ago, we're only, he was only cobbling shoes to pay the expenses. Your work and your where you are is the place that God has given you sovereignly to share the gospel. Whether it be in school, whether it be in high school, college, or wherever you work, you're there, even though you're to do the best you can and make a living, you're there for God's purpose and plan. He says, every, every other word in here is really a participle and it modifies, set your hope. So the method is given to us in the first part of that verse. It is self-control. Prepare is a supporting participle which in the middle says, and it gives special attention to you and me. We need to prepare to be holy. We need to prepare ourselves so that our hope is really on Christ. It reminds the believer we have a responsibility to make ourselves ready. The imagery behind this is girding up your loins. In other words, in Peter's day, they wore long robes. I, I thank God we're not there. We don't have to dress like them. But they wore long robes, and when they really wanted to be put in action, they would tuck up the robe under their belts so they would be free to move and have the energy free to go. So they'd tuck them in. So the garment would not impede their action. So we have a responsibility to get rid of the slackness, to pick up the loose ends, and to think clearly. Hebrews 12 reminds us of that in verses 1 and 2. It says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the wraith that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You don't see people running races in the Olympics wearing combat boots. In fact, I'm kind of embarrassed what they do wear, to be honest with you. But my point is this, that they run the race that there's nothing that would impede their progress. What impedes your progress? 
What's slowing you down? What sin is so easily committed in your life or my life? What is it that keeps us from really going all out, 100% for Jesus Christ? It could be sports. It could be a number of things. It's sports in my life. I remembered that I used to, years ago, when Tom Landry was the coach of Dallas Cowboys, I was a Cowboy fan, and they always played a game at 3 o'clock and it was never over at 6. Then we decided to have church at 6 o'clock in the evening. I was for it, but I really wasn't. So sure enough, they always got the 3 o'clock games. And then, thank God, in his providence, invented a VCR. <laughs> so I could go to church, click on the VCR, watch it later. Then some guy like Tony Ways, who used to go here, <laughs> would sit in a car and wait. And then he'd come in. I like to sit down and watch a game as I've never seen it. And he'd come in. Finally got him trained. But even if I knew the score, you know, it did have a spiritual lesson. This is totally off the, totally off the record. You know, there was a spiritual lesson in here. If I knew we won, I could go watch the whole thing and relax. You know, we win. I've read the last book of the only book, that, uh, last chapter of the only book that God ever wrote to man, and we win. You can relax. God will take care of us. You don't have to get hyper or bent out of shape or any of those kinds of things because we win. God has promised to take us to the end. God has promised to work all things out for good, has he not? Wow. I could go on that too. This is a familiar picture in Scripture, this tucking up your robe, for example. Exodus 20, 11. Now you shall eat in this manner with your loins girded and your sandals on your feet and staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. You be ready. 1 Kings 18, 46, And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. <clears throat> Luke 12, Be dressed in readiness. Keep your lamps lit. Ephesians chapter 6, 14, Stand firm, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. We need to be ready to go, ready to serve, because we face three areas of temptation. We face the flesh, the world, and the devil. And one must be prepared to meet and resist the dangers because a loosed mind results in loose living. We must keep our minds shored up. Worldliness is between the two ears. And our minds is where it all begins. You know, are you in the Word every day? You have a time when you, are you in prayer every day or only when it's in a jam? Do you have any kind of a Bible reading program or do you want one? And if you don't want one, maybe you need to go back and review where you are with the Lord. Gathering up loose ends is in the area of your minds for action. The word mind is apart from the context, means thought, reflection, ponder, the way of thinking. 
This word is not common in the New Testament, but all the writers of the New Testament refer to it. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord with all God with all your heart and with all your soul and... Oh, come on. I know you're not Pentecostal. I found that out this morning, but you can't answer the questions, okay? With all your mind. And this is the covenant, he said in Hebrews 10, verse 16, speaking of the new covenant, that I will make them, make with them after those days, says the Lord, I put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. The reason we gird up our minds for action is because the remnant of sin within our flesh, the temptations of the world, and the activity of Satan. The word sin first appears in the, in, with Cain. And there it is personified as a beast. Genesis 4, 7 says, If you do well, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not well, sin is crouching at your door like a wild beast. Some of our farmers, when, they, when the ground is wet, have found cat tracks about that big around, and they took pictures of them with their cell phones. There's only one animal in America that meets that qualification. It's called a mountain lion, puma, cougar, whatever. And some of these guys go have to check their wells at midnight through rows of corn just wide enough to get their ATVs through. And they said when they get out, it's a little weary that maybe one of these cats is there ready to pounce on them. You say they should be braver than that. You try it. On the other hand, we read this, Romans 7, 8, where sin is personified. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me the coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Sin seizes the opportunity. Sin reproduced. More sin. Romans 7, 9, I was, was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. Sin becomes alive. Read the law? You know, you never probably touched that bench before, but if it said don't touch the bench, wet paint, what's your first temptation? As soon as the law comes, you want to you violate it. Raises it alive. Romans 7, 11, for sin taking opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. Sin seized again, sin deceived him, and sin killed him. I think I can say this safely because I think uh, Rick and I agree on this. This is a believer in this passage. The passage in Romans alerts and reminds us that sin is not static, but incremental and progressive. In the light of this truth and the invasiveness of sin, Peter started his epistle by stating our position and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. We're dealing with a live, active enemy all within, let alone the temptations from the world and also Satan heavily evolved. Then he says, the next one is concentration. Be sober in spirit. Again, it's a present participle. Modifying, set your hope. Literally, this means no wine. 
It is the opposite of being drunk with wine, and metaphorically, it means to be self-controlled. In Greek, in the Greek of the day, it was meant, from this standpoint, it was very valuable for money-making marketing, Eric, and for final affairs. If one is to keep a steadfast hope, there must be sobriety and seriousness in our mindset, which is observed in a manner of living. Now, I love to have a good time. I love to kid people. It's got me in trouble at times. I kidded the wrong person. But I, I, I think there's a place for that, but there is a place for sobriety in our Christian faith. I'm not big on Christian uh, comedians, quite frankly. I think they don't know where to cross the line or not cross the line. If one is to serve God, he cannot, for the sake of God, he, he can, the power and gifts that God granted to him in grace. One cannot be thrown off the track by new ideas or toying with fire. You've got to be sober about this. Proverbs says, 627, can a man take fire in his bosom and not be burnt? His clothes not be burnt. Later in this epistle, Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment, sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Chapter 5, verse 8, he talks about it again. Be of sober spirit, be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It's like that lion in the cornfield. Where is he and when is he going to pounce? generally when we least expect it, but he's out there. Therefore, if anyone thinks he stand, take heed lest he fall, 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Our, our church where I'm pastoring right now has just has been a real blessing. It has, been, it has been almost too good. Not that I wish for bad things. I've had my share of those. But I told the leadership, you know, guys, we got to be on alert. The devil is not going to let this thing go. The devil's going to prop up at some place unexpectedly. He's out there. So let's take the warning of Paul to the Ephesians. Be alert and be in prayer. The product is a hope on grace in chapter 13. On the grace, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the same grace referred to in verse 10 of the same chapter. And to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you make careful searches and inquiries. There are two thoughts combined in this grace, salvation and inheritance. Both are true. But the focus is to be on that great salvation. Don't ever move away from the cross. The emphasis in this passage, however, is on the second coming of Jesus Christ. Set your, fo set your focus on that, the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, one of the devil's favorite tricks in theology is to really mess up all of eschatology, all of the doctrinal last thing. He's robbed the church of the hope of the second coming of Jesus Christ and the imminent return of his son. He's robbed us of it. My dad, when he was dying of cancer, when he found out that he had terminal cancer and he had about four months or so to live, 
which in fact, that's all he did live. He said to me, I've always taught in my Bible classes that there's only two ways to get to heaven. One is to die, and the other is the rapture of the church. He said, I'm holding out for the rapture. He had that hope all the way till his dying breath. Well, he's in heaven, he's in glory now. But what a wonderful hope it is. The hope enables us, the believer, to see an end of this chaotic circumstances in this world and his life personally. It is going to end, as we said early, and we win. That's our hope. All the chaos, all the mess, all the decay, everything that's going on, the political shambles, everything, it's going to end. We ought to have a, a joy, right? When you get into these coffee things and you start talking to unbelievers, and I sit around and listen to them, it's just down, 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 down. Price of corn is down. It's raining too much. It's too dry. It's all this. And you say, you know, the Lord will work it out. Hush. Negatively, in verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which yours was yours in ignorance. Obedient children could be literally children of obedience. Comparing believers to children is not an uncommon characterization in the Word of God. Children have an innate desire to please their parents. I wouldn't know it watching some. But you got to train them to do that. You're a parent. You're in charge. Be in charge. Call, make your yes, yes, and your no, no. Isn't that what the Bible says? If you say no, and you have to say it again, you've just reduced your effectiveness how much? 50%. Three times no, 30%. You're down to 30% effective. I tell parents of two-year-olds, if you can't make your child go say yes or no at two, what are you going to do when they're 16? When they're driving a 4,000-pound car. If they don't respect your word at two, you're in serious trouble. You got to start. You can't start at 16. You can't start when they're teenagers. You've got to implant that when you bring them home after you've cut the cord. That's another subject. I guess you're getting there, so I don't have to go there. But obedient children, cultivate a life of obedience and separate yourself from the former desires. Again, he says, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. The word means to mold, to conform. You could say stop conforming. Literally, stop being fashioned or shaped to, soar, for, for, to, excuse me, to serve your former evil desires. You were saved out of that stuff. Why do you want to go back in it? <coughs> Why would we want to go back in it? Isn't that what brought us to salvation? The Holy Spirit pointed out our sin, pointed out the mess we were in, 
And we were glad when we heard the news that Christ died for us. We repented of our sin and we're walking in the newness of life. We're new creatures of life. And then we want to go back to that stuff? you got to be kidding me. This temptation is there. I realize it. Stop being conformed. Romans 12, 2. <clears throat> Do not be conformed to this world. You know that verse. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Wow, we've heard that word before. Mind. Yeah, what are you putting in your mind? How much garbage is being put in your mind through the week? Billboards, ads, music, news, sports news. And you don't have time for a couple hours on Sunday morning to sit and hear the Word of God. You don't have time to get in a Bible study. You don't have time to read through the Word of God. Where you, you need to prepare your mind. You need to be sober about your life. And you need to review where you are. You do what you want to do, quite frankly. You have time for everything you want to do. And if you don't have time to really get in the Word, it's because you don't want to. I used to think, is there a way that I could see people like the people at Belarus about which Rick was speaking who really want the Word and will stay later and get the Word? Where is it? How do you generate that in a person? I came to the conclusion it's only the Holy Spirit that generates it and a person who is willing to listen to the Holy Spirit in their life if, in fact, they're saved. Desire the sincere milk of the Word, it says, like a babe. You know, you, a babe is not satisfied with you gaga and goo-gooing if, he, if it's hungry. Give him the bottle, for heaven's sake. They're hungry. Teach them. Teach them the Word. I read Lawson's book, Famine in the Land. The one thing I do remember about the book is there's a famine in the land, a Bible teaching. How true that is. A group of people, about four or five families, came into our church just last, late last spring from another denominational church, and I'm appalled at the, and they have been there all their life. I'm appalled at how little Bible they know. I say turn to 1 Kings. Turn to Mark. Have to go into their index. But I'll say this for them. They want the word and realize how little they've lost it. And sometimes we in a church like this where the Bible has been exposed to us, it's been preached expositorily, verse by verse, line by line, precept by precept. Oh, I'll go... Where's the fire? Where's the vim? Where's the vigor? Where is that that drives us to serve him? Where is it? I know it's some of you, I'm preaching to the choir. And to you that are the choir, in essence, don't ever lose that fire. I'm going through Revelation and where the church at, at Ephesus, it lost its love. It was fundamental. It was sound. But it lost its love. 
It's easy to do in marriage, isn't it? You first get married, man, this is great. We'll never lose this. Oh, be careful. <laughs> first thing you know, you're taking each other for granted. When you were trying to get her men, didn't you open their car door and stuff? Hi, honey. That's all right, honey. I don't care if the toast is burnt, honey. <laughs> I don't care if you don't know how to cook. I don't care if you don't hang up your coat. I don't care. Love covers a multitude of sins. But that church lost their first love. They fought the Nicolaitans. They made sure that the true apostles, but they got to fighting so much they forgot their love. I know churches like that. I hope it never happens at Mission Road or Countryside. Let's keep it fresh. Let's keep it vibrant. You know, Rick said it. People gather after church, you've got to turn the lights out to get them go. That's a great thing. We have a Bible study we started on Sunday night. <clears throat> I just teach an hour. We don't have any music. <laughs> There's a reason. <laughs> but you do have good music here, Aaron. You've done a good job, and I appreciate all the musicians I've seen up here when I've been here. It's good to hear you sing, and good to hear you uh, your, your performance here and the sincerity of it, that's great. But we meet for an hour and then we study I, and the people meet around tables and I said, everybody's hanging around, why don't you just bring your junk food after the Bible study and we'll eat it here. Just what's left over from the meals. Man, we got regular meals now. <laughs> and three quarters of our church come back every Sunday night and just sit around and we have a Bible study. They ask the questions they want to ask. And we have a great time of fellowship, and there's love in that place. They love each other. They care for each other. Similar to what you're doing here. Don't lose it. Now I'm off the subject. 1 John 2, verses 15 and 17 says, Do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, whoa, listen to this. The love of the Father is not in it. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. I've been to the deathbed of my own parents and the deathbed of others. And when you're at the deathbed, you don't talk about how many acres you owned or how many bushels to acre you make. You don't talk about how many stocks you may have. You don't talk about your estate. You don't talk about your home. You talk about things that really matter. Don't let the world shape your thinking. Also to the do not be conformed to the former lusts. Word lust is a neuter word, but in the context it is evil. Martin Luther said, we're sinners and we're saints at the same time. Ephesians 2, 1 said, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and power of the air, and of the spirit which is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even so as the rest. What about you? 
What about me? Is that former? Is that long ago? Separate yourself from foolishness. He told us in this verse, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in ignorance. What else could you do? Ignorance is a reference to one's unsaved pagan way of life. Romans 1, 18 and 19, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident with them for God made it evident to them. Acts 17, verse 30, therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance. Ephesians 4, 17, so I say, affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk in the fertility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God. Why in the world would a Christian want to get back in that lifestyle? Why in the world would a guy want to see how close he can walk to that and be in a party and be accepted? I think the opposite ought to be true. They ought to know where we stand. Oh, they might talk about us. Oh, what will the world think? What will the other people in the office think? What will the neighbors think? What will the people, parents whom, with whom our children go to school think? What will the church people think? The only thing we should do is be concerned about what the Lord thinks. What does he think? What did he say? The goal is now in verse 15, be like the Holy One who called you. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Two aspects about holiness. One is God is way above his and separate from his creation. He is the creator. He's not in creation. One time uh, I was in a funeral and uh, uh, one of the daughters of the deceased came up to me and said, would you read this poem? And like a fool, I said, yeah, I'll read it. Sat in a hearse and we drove to the cemetery, so I thought, well, I better read what you gave me. It was horrendous. It was pantheistic. Grandma, or mother, is a snowflake coming down. And she's in the leaves of the trees and roses and all this. Now, I got, now I'm in a pickle. So I said to the <clears throat> group around the cemetery, I'll read the poem that one of the siblings gave to me. And I said, so I read it, and I said, you know, that's not true. That's not true. God is above his creation. He's not in it. He's not it. He's over and above. He's the creator. But there's another aspect of holiness, God's abhorrence and separation from sin and evil. Be like the Holy One who called you. But introduces a very strong adversative. Like the Holy One, literally like the one having called you is holy. You and I were called to salvation before the foundation of the world. God elected us to faith. For what? To see how close we could live to the world? No, to be like him. 
I'm looking forward to the day when I can be like him, when the war is over, when, he'll, when I will finally realize the ultimate purpose of my salvation and his holy calling. He picked you out of the cesspool of sin and evil and picked you out, chose you before you were ever born, before you ever created the world, knowing what kind of mess it was. He picked you and chose you out. Why? Because he loved you. And he wanted you to be a shining light in a very dark world. Why do you want to dim that thing? Jesus said, why do you want to put a bushel basket over the candle? It's all through the scripture, isn't it? God is the model of all holiness. The one who called us is holy. The one who called us to salvation is holy. And he is called the Holy One. Isaiah 6, 3, the one cherubim called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, 24-7. I've told you before, some of you remember. I always thought that was kind of boring. Just to say, holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. You know what dawned on me? I've never seen an awesome God personally. I've never seen him in all his beauty. I've never seen all that magnificent, awesome sight they had. And all they could do was say, holy, holy, holy. Hosea 11:9. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst. Habakkuk 1:13. Your eyes are too pure to approve of evil. You cannot look on the wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor, O deal with treacherously? In other words, he's describing why would you as a holy God pick Babylon? Mark 1:24, the demons say to Christ, what business do we have with each other? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy you? Us, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. John says in John, 1 John 2:20, you have an anointing from the Holy One who lives in us. We are the sanctuary. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Sometimes we dulled our senses so far we're not even convicted of sin. When's the last time you confessed sin? Did you sin today? Have you sinned already today? I have. We sin all the time, don't we? And we, and we, don't, we don't take care of it. That's ah, not important. It's not a biggie. Just a kind of little one. little white lie. You know where preachers do it is and how much attendance do they have. I used to go to these preachers' meetings in central Kansas and They'd have, you go to a small church, and they used to have on the side of the church how many were in Sunday school last week and how many, what's our record and so forth and how much money you give in the offering. Ever see those? 
and uh, I'd go to some churches and they'd taken it down because you could still see the outline of the sign against the paint. The paint was fresher behind it. God is holy and he is separate from all that is morally impure and evil. 1 John 1, 5, this is a message we've heard from him, that in him is no darkness at all. Lenski says, love that it, love all that is pure and good and hate and, and hates holiness, loves all that is pure and good and hates and abominates and punishes all that is sinful. The one who called you, that's the effectual call. Peter says, you're a chosen race. 2 Peter 2.21, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving for you an example. 1 Peter 5.10, and you have suffered for a little, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ himself will perfect, conform, strengthen, and establish you. In all, your, in all your life, we're to behave. Now, look, I got to close this because I could, I'm, I'm been known to go over. <laughs> he says, be like the Holy One who called you, behold yourself in all your behavior. Prepare your minds. You're going to this thing, that thing, or you're talking to your neighbor or whatever. Just say, Lord, help me to be holy. Help me to display the love I really have for you. I, I think that's what it boils down to. How much do you really love Christ, don't you? Don't you think the bottom line's that? I think the bottom line is I love Christ more than I love anything else. More than I love my family. More than I love my mate. More than I love my church things. More than I love everything. I mean, if you really love Jesus Christ, you'll be a better mate. You'll be a better father. You'll be a better mother. You'll be a better worker in the church. You'll be a better witness. I think it boils down to that. Then he ends it up and he says, this is a command, by the way. This is a sobering command. Because it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. What more could be said? The word written is it was written in the past and it stands written today. The grass withers, the flower fades, as Isaiah said, but the word of our God stands forever. You shall be holy, for I am holy. That's a military command. Be holy and do what it takes to get there in your own mind. Shove off the stuff that is clouding up. Take off that which is encumbering you. It's, it's a constant thing. The devil has a way, the flesh has a way, the world has a way of just crowding in all this stuff. And, we not, and every once in a while, we gotta clean the, clean the house and keep it clean. It's a lot easier to keep it clean than let it clutter up, isn't it? <clears throat> Be holy, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Let's stand for closing prayer. Father, we've looked at your word 
And like usual, we see the standard and we measure ourselves by that standard and we say with Paul, we've not arrived. But this one thing we do, Father, we press on to the high calling. We press on, Father. We forget all that stuff behind. We confess our sin and we move on. Lord, I pray that every member, every person that attends this church and ours, Lord, would be really serious about their Christian life and their walk with you, Father. We confess our phoniness. We forget, confess pretending. We want to be real. I want to be real. And Lord, help us to get rid of that sin that so easily plagues us that it, we confess it and it's right back there. We confess it again and it's back there again. Help us through the power of your word, the written word and the Holy Spirit to overcome these sins. If there's any person here, Father, that does not know <coughs> The Lord Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior and realizes that they're just religious. It's a profession. It's sought something they own or possess. We pray that God the Holy Spirit will convict them of sin, of righteousness, and justice. And Father, that tonight they may place their faith and trust, having repented of their sin, in the Lord Jesus Christ and become a new creature. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.